So glad to be back with you tonight. Appreciate your presence. Especially if you're visiting with us, we're honored that you're here with us. And we want you to come back every opportunity that you have and, and be with us. If you would, open your Bibles to Acts 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to notice a passage in Acts chapter 9. And we're going to begin with verse 1. We're not going to read the whole passage right now. We're just going to introduce what we're going to talk about. Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Tonight's sermon I have entitled, The Road to a Changed Life. My father was a genealogist. He loved history, his family's history. He spent a great deal of time studying the place where our family originated, chronicling their history from the time they came over here from Europe until the point in time he became a part of that history. Now, there are many people who have a deep interest in things of that nature. They enjoy studying those things, uh, learning the very details of their history, and that's a good thing if that's what you're interested in. My dad was interested in that. Now, that skipped me. I'm not necessarily interested in that. I was happy to know my grandparents, and beyond that, it didn't interest me that much. I appreciate my history. But I'm not going to spend the kind of time my dad spent. He had volumes and volumes and volumes of uh, family trees of not just our family, but whoever might call him and ask him to trace their roots. And so he had uh, volumes and volumes of material, and, and he would get calls from people all over the country wanting to know a little history in some way. But... The thing is, when you begin to dig into your history or someone else's history, normally without doubt you come across someone who made an impact, a huge impact in some way, to their people in their area at their time. Now, I think Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul, was one such person. I think he made a huge impact on the people around him at his time in his place. And of course, he continues to do that. The place of Paul will forever be uh, uh, inscribed in the annals of history. He holds a place that he will always hold, especially in the sight of God, because he excelled in life above average. He was one of the greatest men of his time, of any time, really. Many unprejudiced scholars rate Paul as a great man. In fact, James Stalker, author of the life of St. Paul, he said this concerning this man. He said, He was naturally of immense mental stature and force. He would have been a remarkable man even if he had never become a Christian. The other apostles would have lived and died in the obscurity of Galilee if they had not been lifted into prominence by the Christian movement. But the name of Saul of Tarsus would have been remembered still in some character or other, even if Christianity had never existed. And I believe that. 
I believe he was that kind of a man. He was going to be successful. He was successful in his religion, even when it was a false religion, as he subscribed to the Jewish religion. Now, it is impossible to properly state the contribution some men make to the progress of society. Let's think of it this way. A person may invent something, may discover something in the area of medicine, physics, or science, but the influence of that discovery often will transcend the discipline. It affects other things in this world. Think of it this way. Let's take the Wright brothers, for instance. Who would have ever thought that their discovery, at the time they discovered it, would have changed the world in which it has? What about trying to travel to Europe or the Far East or any other nation outside of our own nation and within our nation without the use of an airplane? Air travel has become so convenient and so common, we can't imagine going somewhere of any distance without an airplane. What about Henry Ford's motorized buggy? Who would have ever thought that that vehicle would have impacted the things that it impacted? Not just uh, automobiles. What about the need for gasoline? The need for rubber tires? Petroleum products that were discovered because of that. International commerce has been changed because of what one man did with one invention. When we look at history, we understand that things of that nature have impacted the world. What about the medical field? There are cures and answers to problems in medicine that would have boggled the minds of people 100 years ago, 50 years ago. But we have those advances. Most of these great ideas begin as a germ of an idea, and then it develops and explodes into greatness. I think we can look at the Apostle Paul, and we can add him into this category. For those living at his time, in his area, and in his place, I don't think they appreciated fully what he had done. But that's common among men, isn't it? Often someone who contributes something great to society will never be acknowledged by the masses until years later and sometimes many years later. Uh, Jesus Christ commented once, Matthew 13, 57, he said, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. Let's look a little deeper this evening for a few moments into the life of Paul and the road to a changed life. I think ultimately we're going to notice some things that perhaps we haven't noticed before. At least I know I didn't notice many of them. But I want us to focus on the trip that he took along that road to Damascus. I want us to see how that can apply to us today and the wonderful things that is a result of that as he took that trip. But we have to start somewhere. That's the way trips begin, isn't it? You have to have a starting point. And we're going to begin tonight with his tradition. That's our first point. His tradition. Now as we look at the history of any person, And any person would look at Paul's history. I believe that they would be impressed, and rightly so, with his pedigree. He had a long one, didn't he? He was no regular Jew. 
He wasn't just your average, run-of-the-mill person who believed in God and maybe wasn't nearly as faithful as he should have been. He was born a Jew. He was the descendants uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. And he was faithful. He described himself this way. Philippians 3 verse 5, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law a Pharisee. He would later say, recorded in Acts 23 verse 6, and the son of a Pharisee. Now, when we think of these two sects, and we read a lot about them in the New Testament, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If one wanted to be a Pharisee, all they had to do was to convert. They could become a Pharisee. On the other hand, if one were a Sadducee, he had to be born a Sadducee. That was the priestly family. That was in the lineage of Levi. And so for one to be a Sadducee, you had to be born a Sadducee. And they predominantly lived in Jerusalem or very close to it. So as we look over the history of Christ and we see His interaction with both Pharisee and Sadducee, we notice that throughout the country He came into contact with Pharisees. But He only interacted with the Sadducee when he was in Jerusalem or close to it. Now, twice in his epistles, Paul called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. That meant he was born a Jew from Jewish parents who were not proselytes. In fact, he was a Hebrew of Hebrew parents from a long line of Hebrews. His genealogy could be traced all the way back to Benjamin. Now, he said he was circumcised the eighth day. Well, what does that indicate to us? Again, that indicates he was not a proselyte. They were circumcised at the time they converted. He was born a Jew. He was not an Edomite. An Edomite was circumcised at the age of 13, following the example of Ishmael. Now, his birthplace... Tarsus of Cilicia, Acts 22, verse uh, 3. Now, Tarsus of Cilicia was an education uh, empire. It almost rivaled Alexandria and Athens. And its location lent itself to be a wonderful area of commerce. So there was a lot of traffic in and out. A lot of people went to that area. Uh, it, it allowed uh, the pathways into the interior of Asia Minor. It allowed for different philosophies of people to come through and to interact, and that's what the Greeks loved. They loved for that interaction. Paul described it as no mean city. We see that in Acts 21 verse 39, meaning it wasn't just your average city. It was something extra special. It was a wealthy city. It was an educated city. And as a young child, in his tradition, as we notice his pedigree, he would have received an excellent education that all Jewish boys customarily received. Now, this common education that he received was related to his uh, Jewish background. In those Greek schools, here's how it usually happened. The teachers were traveling educators. They would usually meet in the street or on a porch or something of that nature, and the instructors would walk back and forth and they would recite the lesson of the day and listen to it being recited back. 
Now sometimes they met in a school. That would have been a one or two room school in the synagogue and the person who was the head of the synagogue was also the teacher. And so they would have gotten these wonderful, uh, gotten this wonderful education. Now at the age of about six, Jewish boys began the study of the Pentateuch. They began to study writing and arithmetic. This would have been part of Paul's education. When he reached the age of ten, he began to study the Mishnah. Now that is the oral uh, translation of the Torah. In fact, they called it the oral Torah. Of course, in our time now it is written down. The oral traditions would be recited back and then the, uh, to the student, and the student would recite that back to the teacher. And this was over and over and over and over. When the, the student reached the age of 15, they began to study the Gomorrah. That was added to the curriculum. Now what the Gomorrah was, was in essence it was a commentary on the law handed down over generation and generation and generation by the rabbis. This was not in the law of Moses. But Paul would have memorized all 600 additional rules added to their religion. He would know those. And they held those traditions, at least in Paul's sect, as, uh, as highly as they held the law itself. Now, as Paul received the normal parochial or Jewish education, he also see, received the Greek education. We see that in his writings, don't we? He's very understanding of the Grecian philosophies. And in general, as we look at the life of Paul and understand his history, it is commonly understood and accepted that he was born around the same time as Jesus, maybe a year or two before or after. So they were... Uh, common at the same time. They lived in the same time frame. Now, as far as we know, Paul was never in association with Jesus. That came later, his time in that part of the world. Now, understanding that, think about it this way. Knowing that John was six months older than Jesus, we read that in Luke one don't they make a very interesting trio? of men who would impact the world in a way that has never been the same. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth as a lowly carpenter. John grew up in the wilderness. He uh, uh, was, the, was the herald, wasn't he? And then we have Paul with this city lifestyle, growing up in Tarsus and at some point growing up in Jerusalem, finishing that, and they would form a force of salvation like the world had never known. Of course, at the beginning of all of that, Paul having no interaction with the two others. At that time, the world was completely unconscious of these three men. We see uh, John, the forerunner. We see Jesus, the Messiah. And now we have Paul, the missionary, the proclaimer of the gospel. But what we have to understand as we look at Paul's tradition, a pedigree means nothing unless it is founded upon principles. Principles uh, by which one will guide his life. We have to have that, right? I think that's the problem in today's culture. How many godly principles are taught in average in the world today? I don't think people are even talking about godly principles. 
when we talk about the world in general. I think that's one issue we have. But Saul's principal foundation was laid in Jerusalem. That's where it began for him. We know he was brought up in Jerusalem at some point. Now exactly at what point, we're not sure. But in their book, Coney Bear and Housen restructured the likely first trip that Paul took to the Holy Land. They believed that he lived in Tarsus until about the age of 11, certainly not past 13. That's when Jewish families would send their sons back to Jerusalem to be trained. So he went at a young age, and while in Jerusalem, we know where he studied. He studied, we're told, at the feet of Gamaliel, Acts 22, verse 3. Now this is where we begin to understand. There were two sects within the Pharisaic uh, division of of the law of uh, Moses. Those who adhered to that. You had the sect of the Pharisees of the school of Hillel. And then you had the sect of the Pharisees of the school of Shammai. Two different men that held two different beliefs. Hillel held that oral tradition was just as binding as the law of Moses. That is the school to whom Paul belonged. Gamaliel was the son of Halil. Shammai, on the other hand, hated anything that was not strictly in the law. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us this. He says that the Pharisees have delivered to the people a great many observations by succession or oral tradition from their fathers which are not written in the law of Moses. Again, during his education, Paul would have memorized all 600 of those to go in addition to the law. So as we look at Paul's life and his road to a changed life, we see he had a healthy tradition. And we want to notice that because if anyone can change from something, we can look to Paul and we can see that it's possible. Paul held a place in the religion of Judaism that people other than him would have loved to have had. He had worked himself way up toward the top of that. He was, uh, had a great responsibility to the religion. He was well thought of. He would have had a comfortable life if he had remained in that religion. And if he can change his life after understanding the tradition from which he came, anyone can change their lives. But he also had something else other than a tradition. Our second point is he had a trade. Paul had a trade. He had a vocation. Now, because according to the culture, Jewish boys were not only taught the parochial education, they were taught how to support themselves. And as we look at the history of Paul, we know that Acts chapter 18, he was a part-time tent maker. He was a part-time tent maker. He was a part-time lawyer or doctor of the law of Moses, but he was a full-time murderer of Christians. That was his trade. That was his vocation. There's something interesting about Paul's trade, though. Paul could look back over his life, and he could, without a doubt, firmly state that he lived his life in service to God, he thought. In fact, as he stood before the Sanhedrin Council, Acts 23, verse 1, he made this statement. 
He said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now he had a zeal for God, but in his own words, as he talked to the Romans, Romans 10 verse 2, it was not according to knowledge. Someone can have a zeal for something, but if it's not according to knowledge, is it correct? It can't be, can it? Paul was a murderer of Christians. He had a clean, clear conscience. He slept good at night, understanding he was going to go down and arrest some men or women, didn't matter to him, whoever was a Christian, and he was going to haul them off to prison, take them back to Jerusalem bound, and that was the trip on which he was going. Paul hated Christians. In fact, he said this, in describing himself, Acts 26, beginning with verse 9, he said, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them off in every synagogue. Now listen to what he did. And compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceeding mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. That is the trip on which we are watching him right now. Going to those strange cities, persecuting people. Now with that in mind, let's turn our attention to his real vocation. Violence. He was a terrorist. He terrorized people. Following verse takes us to his journey down the road of a changed life. He said, Acts 26 verse 12, Whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, even after a period of time had elapsed since he listened to that wonderful sermon that we mentioned this morning from Stephen, Paul was still, Acts 9 verse 1, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against Christians. Now I want us to remember, when we look in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 8 verse 1, and we read about the saints being scattered abroad, don't you think that Paul finally said, I have eradicated these bunch of heretics, I've got this false religion taken care of, but after a period of time the news had to start filtering back. All of those saints who had been scattered abroad, had been run out of Jerusalem, they were going to the uttermost parts of the world, and what were they doing? They were establishing congregations of the Lord's people. A lesser man of dedication may have become discouraged, thinking, well, I thought I had eradicated them, but not Paul. Paul said, Amped it up a little bit, didn't he? He said, I'm going to go out to these strange cities. I'll hunt them down. Now, to his credit, he carried that characteristic with him when he became a Christian. Now, in defending his apostleship to the Corinthians, Paul made mention of this very type of zeal that he had. The things that he did that he gave himself for his cause. He was comparing himself to the false apostles, and he said, 2 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 23, he said, I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes, above measure, in prisons more frequent, 
in deaths more oft. He was threatened more. Do you think a false apostle would put his life in jeopardy? No, he wasn't interested in changing his life. Of the Jews, he said, Five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was bitten, uh, beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A day and a night I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen. He goes on to talk about being weary and hungry and naked. He said all of those things. In addition to that, the worry of the church that I carry with me every day. Paul would simply never be deterred. He took that zeal with him, but it was according to knowledge. He changed his life. Thankfully, we've been given the privilege of watching that. We see him from a time when he was helping to murder the the preacher Stephen all the way up to the time where he told Timothy. In a letter, he said, I'm ready to be poured out. My time is near. He said, I fought a good fight. I kept the faith. Now I know there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4, beginning with verse 6. What a wonderful man to watch and to look. Paul began his walk to a changed life. Though he had a great tradition, he still walked in that way. He had a wonderful tradition. He had a trade that he could make a living. But what we notice about Paul, and is the main point of what we're talking about tonight, we can see the transformation that took place in his life as he walked the road to a changed life. It all started on his campaign to Damascus. He headed to the outer corners of the Roman Empire to hunt down Christians, and in his mind, I'm sure he wanted to have them put to death. I don't know that just simply throwing them in prison would have uh, suited Paul. You talk about a man with tunnel vision. He was dedicated to what he thought was right. We need to understand something from that. We may think we're right about something, and all along we could be wrong. We need to do it according to knowledge, right? Paul had to come to an understanding, and he came to one in a very personal way. He had to come to the understanding that though he loved God, and I believe he did, and I believe he wanted to be pleasing to God, and I think he wanted to be faithful to God, he was not doing it properly. Does that happen in our world today? We've mentioned this before, and we look out over the world and the over 7 billion people in the world and people who simply claim to be Christians. There are over 40,000 different organizations of those people in the world. 40,000? How is that even possible? Someone is not doing something according to knowledge, right? Now it could be all of the 40,000 different groups or it could be 39,999,999. Only one can be correct, right? Because they all teach something different. They all teach something different. And so we have to look into the Bible and we have to understand exactly who is right. Now Saul, we have to understand just how brutal he could be. Saul was a man who wanted to eradicate Christians from the face of the earth. Luke recorded saying, And Saul was consenting unto his death, talking about Stephen. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem and Paul was the main cog. He was the one that was pushing the persecution. 
And they were all scattered abroad throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men, it says, carried Stephen and laid him in his grave. And they made great lamentation over him. But what does it say about Paul? Made great havoc of the church. He was good at what he did. Now we can be certain of what was on Saul's mind as he went on his campaign to Damascus. Murder. But instead of continuing his campaign of terror, we learn the good news. And thankfully for us, Paul was converted. And he became the apostle we know and love. As he drew near to Damascus, we learn that suddenly a great light shone round about. And it came from heaven. And falling to the ground, Paul heard a voice. And he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Acts 9 verse 4. Now I believe that Saul, Paul, must have been greatly confused. I don't think he understood exactly what was going on. Remember what he asked? He said, well, who are you? Who are you? Who are you, Lord? Not Lord in the sense of Christ our Lord, but Lord as in the sense of someone with authority. He didn't know. Acts 9 verse 5, he says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the goads. Now I want us to imagine the situation. Paul's lying on the ground. He's been blinded. Finally understanding and listening to the voice of Jesus, he comes to the realization of who Jesus was. One thing that I have always overlooked until this time was he never denied persecuting the church. He knew full well what Jesus was talking about. He knew that when you went into a city, whether it was Jerusalem or one of the strange cities, as is the case in Damascus, and you arrested Christians, you had them put to death, or you threw them in jail, you're persecuting the church. The church and the body is the exact same thing. Colossians 1.18 The body of Christ is His church. And when you persecute the body, you persecute the head. He never said, I didn't persecute you. I didn't even live in the same area when you were alive. I didn't do those terrible things. We do not see Paul do He wasn't that kind of person. He took responsibility for exactly what he had done. Now remember, it wasn't too far in his uh, recent past that he listened to uh, Stephen preach that sermon. He stood and he held the coats of the men who stoned him to death. And now just think, he's laying on the ground. He's listening to Jesus. He's having a conversation with him. And all the time he's thinking, Stephen was right. All this time, Stephen was right. I was wrong. And I've been destroying the very church for which Christ died and gave himself. Can you imagine how he must have felt? I think that's why years later he said this, 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. His heartbreak can be heard in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. He said, For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Heartbroken over that. If Paul was able to walk the road to a changed life, can't we? Can't anyone? Look what he gave up. Paul became a believer 
on the road to Damascus. Now here's something else that's very important. Paul was not converted until he went to Damascus. He was not converted on the road to Damascus. He was still a sinner at the point Ananias came to him. Do you remember the conversation? Paul said, what must I do? What will you have me to do? Jesus said this, go into the city and there it will be told you what you must do. And we remember what happened. Paul was led into the city of Damascus. He was there for three days. He didn't eat. He fasted. He prayed. He was a penitent man. He had just been introduced to our Lord. He saw Him. He had a a conversation with Him face to face. Yet He was still lost in His sin. How do we know that? Well, there are three accounts recorded of what happened to Paul. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 16, and Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 22, we see Ananias coming to Paul. He'd been praying and fasting for three days. No doubt he'd been weeping and begging for forgiveness. Ananias came to him just like Jesus said he would. He taught him the gospel, and then he asked him a question in verse 16. Saul, Saul, why tarryst thou? Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He was still in his sin. You can't pray to be saved or else Paul would have been saved. If Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, Christ didn't know it. Ananias wasn't aware of it. Paul didn't think he was saved because do you know what he did? He got up, he obeyed the gospel. How do you call on the name of the Lord? That's one of the things we need to understand. We call on the name of the Lord through obedience. That's how we call on the name of the Lord, by believing, by repenting, by confessing, being immersed in water just as Saul was told to do, coming up to walk in a new life like the Apostle Paul told those uh, in Rome, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, and then leading a Christian life. After Jesus uh, spoke to Paul, He told him what he needed to do. I think it's very interesting for us to understand at no point in recorded biblical history do we ever see Jesus or an angel or some other manifestation other than a man teach the gospel to another man. The angel didn't teach the eunuch, the one that sent uh, Philip. The Holy Spirit who told him to join himself to the chariot didn't teach the eunuch. Philip taught the eunuch, Acts chapter 8. Man teaches man. That's why Paul would later tell the Thessalonian brethren, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, whereunto he called you by our gospel. He doesn't call us personally. He's not going to whisper to us. He's not going to have a vision come upon us. He's not going to give us a glimpse into eternity to try to scare us into uh, being faithful. He simply has given us the message. And it's the message that calls us to him. That's why he told the Romans that the gospel was the power of God and the source of salvation, Romans 1.16. Of course, when we look at Romans 10, it gives us the, the way in which that unfolds, the course of events that leads us to salvation. Notice Romans 10, beginning with verse 13. Paul asked, he said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. The process can be seen in Saul's conversion. On the road to Damascus, he believed and he confessed. He got to Damascus, he listened to the gospel, and he obeyed it. He got up, he was baptized, and he immediately began to preach. Again, if Saul was converted on the road, he didn't know about it. He still had the burdens of sin. So we have to keep that in mind, right? Thankfully for us, we can look at the history of Saul of Tarsus prior to becoming Paul the Apostle. And we see the road to a changed life on which he walked. If Saul can do it and give up all that he had, he gave up his brethren of the flesh. They went from loving him to hating him. They went from supporting him to trying to take his life. He gave up the opportunity to a comfortable life, to live a life of persecution, being naked, being hungry, being in prison, ultimately giving his life. If Paul could do it, I think we can too. We need to ask ourselves, am I on the road to a changed life? Maybe I need to be. Maybe I need to do something. If I've never obeyed the gospel, that's what I ought to do. I need to do that. I need to be pleasing to God. But sometimes we obey the gospel and then we step off of the road. We read about that in the Bible. We remember Simon the sorcerer, Acts chapter 9. He obeyed the gospel. He was a true believer and then he allowed the temptations of the world to suck him right back in. And he had Peter and John pray for him that the sins that he committed he would not be persecuted for in the ways that they said God would punish. And they did that. We have no reason to believe that he didn't remain faithful. When we, as Christians, slip up, we fall away, we have to ask God to forgive us, whether publicly or privately. If you need to walk the road to a changed life tonight, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.